welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We're in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10, and it's a great message for this New Year's time. I love the season of New Year's, and it is a season for me. It's uh, my favorite holiday. I know that's a weird favorite holiday, but I love it. And I love it partly because I think it's a really great illustration of the gospel. You think about New Year's, a fresh start, uh, a new life. Because, guys, the gospel is good news in two ways, actually. The gospel is good news in that Christ not only forgives our sin, but he frees us from our sin. He not only removes the, the penalty of our sin, but he also removes its power. Just like that song we sung earlier that said, Be to me the double cure save from wrath and make me pure. Those are the two aspects of the gospel, that he not only gives us forgiveness, but freedom. But perhaps you guys have um, found that that whole new life freedom part doesn't come automatically. Has anyone noticed that? You haven't noticed that in the first week of the new year. Have you noticed that the whole new life thing doesn't just come automatically? Okay, some of you guys are like perfectionists. You guys are good. Everything's great. You've been glorified. For most of us, and maybe this is new for some of you, It's been actually really hard to figure out how to live in the freedom that Christ gives. The forgiveness part we receive the moment we believe. We're also freed from the power of sin, but to walk in it, that's a real struggle. And I think most of you guys, for some reason, your arms aren't working. It could be botulism. I don't know what it is. But you weren't able to lift your arms. But I know all of you would agree with me that it it isn't easy. And, And we need to learn how to walk in the freedom that Christ gives. Maybe you guys have wondered why some believers lack fruit. Maybe you've wondered why your own life lacks fruit. Maybe you've wondered why we can so easily get stuck in particular sin patterns. Maybe you've wondered why, you know, in Romans 7, Paul talks about how he does the things he doesn't want to do and can't do the things he wants to do. You know, we have this wrestle within us. And often that's because we're relying, guys, on the law and our own self-effort to change us. We think that if we just somehow, you know, just tell me the thing I need to do and I'll just do it, right? And New Year's feels that way. All I need to know is what the resolutions are. All I need to know is, you know, what commands God wants me to live, and I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to live it. But what we see in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that the real way that God has for us to be transformed is not by merely knowing the law and applying our own self-effort. We're transformed by the gospel and the Spirit. We're transformed by a deepening awareness of the gospel and the Spirit working in our hearts. And our passage today kind of shows us how to to train in such a way that the Spirit more and more transforms our lives. So take a look at 1 Timothy 4.7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for this present life and for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I'm going to focus on verse 7, which is train yourself for godliness. We actually need to train ourselves for godliness. Training is important because training allows us to do something that we can't do by trying alone. Okay? Training allows us to do something that we can't do by trying alone. A good example of this would be a marathon. How many of you guys can run a marathon? I'm waiting for it. Okay, so there's more, more hands about this than struggling with sin, which is interesting. You know, not really. But um, how many of you guys can run a marathon? How many of you guys could run a marathon if you trained for it? 
okay? But how many of you guys can run a marathon right now? Not very many. Most of us could if we trained for it. There are things we can do through training that we can't do through trying alone. Christian life is a marathon, right? Paul says, I finished the race. To finish it well, we need to train. And there's specific training practices that we can engage in to more and more live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. It's about more and more living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And these practices have historically been called the spiritual disciplines. You guys familiar with the term spiritual disciplines? I know when I mention spiritual disciplines, some of you guys are like, I don't know about that. I like to let my relationship with the Lord happen more organically, you know, and naturally. And uh, I would just say, how's that going, you know? And maybe it's going great. It wouldn't be going great for me. Guys, we need to realize that we're not going to be able to do things naturally that are being opposed supernaturally. Okay, so the changes you want are being opposed supernaturally by the flesh, the world, and the devil. We're not going to be able to do things naturally that are being opposed supernaturally. We actually need supernatural power to live out Christ's commands. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Another objection people have to the term spiritual disciplines or talking about them is, you know, hey, this talk about disciplines sounds like legalism to me, right? And certainly in the past, spiritual disciplines have been done legalistically. You can think of like monks you know, sleeping on hard beds or exposing themselves to terrible weather, extreme weather, or excessive fasts where they almost die, or those kinds of things. None of which is prescribed in the Bible. In fact, verses 3 through 4 actually warn against that kind of asceticism. But let's not assume, guys, that all effort in the Christian life is legalism. (laughs) I think a lot of times we get it mixed up. We think any effort is legalism. Notice in verse 10, he says, for to this we, what? To this end, we toil and strive, okay? Uh, Dallas Willard once said, and I really like it, he said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning, okay? Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. So what we're looking for in the Christian life is grace-empowered effort. And so let's look at some of the motives for this in this text. Really cool. It gives us specific motives. Why should we want to train ourselves for godliness? Take a look at verse 7. Train yourself for godliness, and then there's the word for. For, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, for it holds the promise for this present life and also the life to come. First motivation there for training yourself for godliness is that godliness is super valuable. Okay? Godliness is super valuable. So well, what is godliness? Godliness is a, a word that sometimes we think is has a sense of like spiritual superiority or it's kind of got a sometimes a negative connotation in our culture Um, it probably helps for us to understand what godliness is by thinking about what ungodliness is so what is ungodliness ungodliness is not just doing bad things ungodliness is living your life with little or no thought of god of his will of his glory or any dependence on him so it's living a life with little or no thought of god or of God's will, or of his glory, or of a dependence on him. Now, by that definition, there's a lot of nice, ungodly people out there, right? There's a lot of people that are good husbands, and wives, and friends, and work co-workers, and, and kids, and stuff like that, but they're ungodly in the sense that they're rejecting God. And they might be doing good things in, in their regular life on a horizontal level, but they're living in rejection of God, which is a great evil, Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine a child is raised by a good and loving and generous father. As a child grows up, that child rejects his father for no reason that the father had done anything wrong. He was a good and and loving father. 
And imagine that that child, though, lives kind of decently and morally in every other way, but they live in this rejection of their father. That child would still be doing a great evil against his father, right? As much as he's a nice neighbor to you and you enjoy his company and he might be the nicest guy you know, he's still doing a great evil against his father, right? Would you guys agree? Yeah, that's what ungodliness is like. That's us towards God when we're living in an ungodly way. We're despising his love. We're rejecting the one who's given us life and breath and everything. And, and we have to admit, if, if that's the definition of ungodliness, then a lot of us are very prone to ungodliness, right? We're very prone to ungodliness. We're very prone to live whole days and weeks without any thought of God and his will and his glory, right? To, to live functionally as if we don't believe he exists. And so, guys, we need to train for godliness. So what is godliness? Godliness is responding to God's goodness with continual thankfulness and dependence on his power and his presence. So godliness is responding to God's goodness with continual thankfulness and dependence on his power and his presence. That's what it means to live godly. It means to live God-word. It, it means to live knowingly in the presence of God, depending on him, loving him, being thankful to him. And it has huge benefits. It says in this passage, even more than physical training, look at verse 8. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It's an interesting, you know, correlation here. I know some people take this passage and go, it's like, see, you don't have to work out. It's like, that's not what it's saying. It's saying as amazing as physical training is, this kind of training for godliness is better. You think about uh, physical training. What does physical training do? It's an activity that causes adaptations in your body that give you more strength and endurance, right? That's what physical training is. Think about aerobic training. Aerobic training would, would increase your body's ability to take oxygen into your muscles and burn fuel, right? That's what aerobic training would do. So there's actually adaptations that happen when you do aerobic training. So you, your lungs actually get more capillaries to take in oxygen. You know, your heart actually increases its stroke volume, that it actually pumps more blood per beat. You get more capillaries in your muscles, you know, to bring that oxygen down into your muscles. You get more mitochondria in your cells. The whole thing is that you have an increased ability to take oxygen out of the atmosphere, bring it into your muscles, and burn fuel, right? There's adaptations that make that happen. And the cool thing is about spiritual training is that it does similar adaptations. You know, you think about aerobic training would actually allow you to do things that you couldn't do just by trying, like, like running a marathon. And just like physical training causes physical adaptations, spiritual training causes spiritual adaptations. So you can do things you wouldn't be able to do by trying because you're doing them by the power of the Spirit, right? So as we train spiritually, we're actually learning to live off of and be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So how do we do this? How do we train ourselves for godliness? And the simplest answer would be, we engage in the spiritual disciplines that Jesus himself engaged in, right? You know that Jesus actually practiced spiritual disciplines. Jesus, though God, lived as a spirit-empowered man. You can especially see this as you read through the Gospel of Luke or through Hebrews. There's a real emphasis on the fact that Jesus, in his daily experience, lived as a spirit-empowered man, though God, okay? Um, because a lot of times we think about, like, Jesus' life and his righteousness and his goodness, that it was easy for him because he's God. But actually, Luke and Hebrews portray a different picture, that his daily experience was that of a spirit-empowered man. Hebrews says it this way, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus, fully God, never sinning, but he did, as he developed as a real human being, 
learn at each stage of development. He was presented with new challenges and new things he needed to obey, and he did so by the power of the Spirit. And the exciting thing about this is, is that he becomes an example for us in that way because you, as a believer, have that very same Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Super exciting, right? Like, how did Jesus have the power to live that way by the Holy Spirit? You also have the Spirit as a believer. And, um, and even at the cross, it was the Holy Spirit that gave him the strength to do it. Hebrews 9, 14 says this, that it was through the eternal Spirit that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. Isn't that amazing? You think of Jesus offering himself on the cross. How is he able to do this? The Spirit helped him to do it. Through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God. And so Jesus trained to do these things through spiritual disciplines. What kind of spiritual disciplines did Jesus practice? And we could have this be like open up to you guys. Prayer. Okay, we see him praying all the time. Solitude, like that one. What else? Fasting. What else was there? Okay, obedience to the Father. Other spiritual disciplines? Memorizing the Word, totally a man of the Word. So he practiced these spiritual disciplines. And, and guys, this is something we need because there's so, many, there's so many troubles in this room. I mean, if you guys knew everything everyone in this room is dealing with and will deal with this year, it would be absolutely overwhelming, right? Troubles with work and parenting troubles and health issues, both mental health issues and physical health issues, marriage tensions, discontentments, addictions, fears. There's a lot here, okay? There's a lot here. And we can't just rely, guys, on our willpower in the moment to battle all those temptations. Because just trying harder is relying on your willpower. Training is relying on a transformed heart that is actually drawing its strength from the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to learn to do. We want to train in such a way that we draw our life from the Holy Spirit. So let's look at a few of the, of the disciplines that Jesus practiced. The first one, I love it, and you know I love it, solitude or secrecy. Okay, Jesus practiced solitude. One of the things you notice in the Gospels is that Jesus is always looking for a desolate place to escape. It's as if he's talking to people, and he's like, hey, and he's like, kind of like, ooh, that looks desolate over there. I'll have to wait till they're not looking, you know, and get over there, right? He, he loved to be in the eremos, is the Greek word. It's the wilderness, the desert, the desolate place. He's always scoping out a way to do that. And the reason was he wanted to be alone with his father. And this is a discipline that we need to practice as well, guys. And maybe even more than ever, because we are a very performative culture. We want to be seen by people, right? We're very performative, especially online. We want other people to see us. We want them to know what we're doing, know what we're thinking, know what we value, know what our opinions are. We're performative, very performative. We have performative relationships. We have performative parenting. We have performative politics. We have performative working. It's all performative righteousness. We're super into this. And Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then he says, do it in secret, that your father who is in secret will reward you, right? In the discipline of solitude and silence, we're freed from the need for attention and praise, and we learn to be satisfied that God sees us. We learn to be satisfied in just his presence. So that's the discipline of solitude or silence. Discipline of the word. You guys had mentioned that. Jesus is totally a man of the word. I mean, it's amazing how much the word did just come out of him. I mean, he died saying Psalm 22. You know, he's fully a man of the word, especially the Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah and, and Genesis. He dwelled in the word. 
Jesus dwelled in the Word so much that he actually learned to inhabit the story that God was telling. Our culture offers us other stories. Jesus was living in a different story than everyone else. He was living in God's story because he was so much dwelling in God's Word. The culture offers us other stories to live in. Take a look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. This is actually a very, very helpful verse. Let's not live in the silly myths that our culture tells us. And I'm not just talking about the silly myths that, you know, like the wildly ridiculous conspiracy theories that we've heard over the last few years. You know, I've got clients that like all come up to their house and talk to them. You can see it in their eyes how terrorized they've been from the weird stories that they're believing that they've been told. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about like the more subtle myths. You know, the myth of materialism. The myth of materialism says that only the things that you can see and touch and measure are real. There's nothing else. It's a disenchanted world. There's no spiritual. It's a myth of materialism. The myth of human approval. Myth of human approval says, you know, if I could just get everybody to like me, then I'm going to feel secure and happy. Yeah, right. Good luck with that, right? You can't please all the people any of the time. They want different things, right? Or the myth of consumerism that more stuff will make you happy. We believe this over and over again, and it's manifestly not true. We've run the experiment. We've seen people run the experiment like Solomon. He ran the experiment all the way. He's like, I can show you what you get. You get nothing at the end. We have celebrities. We've seen them run the experiment. We know that more stuff won't make us happy, but we keep believing it. The myth of financial security. You know that acquiring wealth will protect us from all troubles. If we had a certain amount of money, then we don't have to worry about terrible things that might happen to us. Tell somebody like Steve Jobs, right? You can have tons of money, and it won't protect you from troubles. When we live in these silly myths that our culture tells, we fear what they fear, which means we fear a lot, and we hope in what they hope in, which means we don't hope very much. As we really need to stop living in the hopeless story the culture tells us, our culture right now is at an incredibly hopeless point. Which is great. Because this is an opportunity for us, people who have resurrection hope, to come in and say, hey guys, you hopeless? Yeah. Let me show you what hope is. But if we live in their story, we can't do that. We look just as freaked out as they are. Right? This is a time we need to make sure we don't live in their story. I love what Isaiah 8 says. It says this, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the ways of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Amen? Yeah, as we dwell in God's story, in his word, and we inhabit that true story as we dwell in his word, We live in a different story, and the story is creation, fall, promise, redemption, restoration. We live in this true story that God's telling with all of history and the whole world. It's this gigantic story that all the other stories fit into, and that's what we're living in. It's so important that when we think about reality, we're thinking about it in that. It's a story of of a hero who comes to rescue his people and make everything sad in the world untrue. That's what he's going to do right? And the way we get in the story, the way we dwell in his word is, is by feeding on his word, guys. And we have to make a habit of feeding on his word. And when I talk about feeding on his word or reading the Bible, what I don't want you to think is like, a lot of times when you ask somebody, you know, hey, how's your Bible reading or whatever going? 
it's like you're, you're checking up on them to make sure they're doing their homework, you know? That there's some sort of like, you know, amount of demand of reading that you need to do to be righteous before God or to feel like you're a good Christian. And so can you just wipe that stuff away? We're, we're taking in the scripture because we want to take in Christ. We're feeding, okay? If you haven't been reading the word and I'm talking about reading the word and you haven't been doing it for weeks, you shouldn't feel guilty. You should feel hungry, really hungry. You're starving. You should eat. And how do, we, how do we feed on the Word? We feed on the Word by reading it. We feed on the Word by studying it, by memorizing it, by meditating on it. You know, reading the Word, just to read it, maybe you read a bunch of chapters, it's kind of like taking a piece of bread and taking bites of it. You know, you're kind of eating the Word. Studying the Word is kind of like chewing it. So you take that Word and you break it down and you try to understand all the components of it. You know, you're chewing it, right? That's study. You know, you spend a little bit more time. And then meditation. Meditation is like tasting the sweetness of it. And that takes a little bit more time. You guys know if you take a piece of bread, any bread, put it in your mouth and you hold it there for a while, what happens? I heard of... Does anybody have a clear word for me? <laughs> what is it? Okay, it's soft. What else if you wait longer? It dissolves. It gets sweet, believe it or not. Maybe you've never spent that much time with it. So even bread, that, even bread that's not sweet, if you put it in your mouth and you hold it for a while, it actually turns sweet. And the reason is there's an enzyme in your saliva called amylase, and it takes the starches, the polysaccharides, and chops them all up into sugars. And so you'll actually start to taste sweetness because it's taken that starch, it's broken down into sugars, and then you taste that sweetness. That's what it's like, guys, when we meditate on the Word. You know, if we take a particular passage and we hold it in our minds for a while and turn it around, and the mind is kind of the mouth of your soul, right? And, and you just let that word kind of savor there, sit there, maybe rolling around on the taste buds of the tongue of your soul until you start to, like, really taste its sweetness. You really savor what's there. Has that been your experience? <laughs> Did you guys know your soul has taste buds? Is that creepy to you? It's one of the wonders of regeneration is that you didn't have taste buds for the Lord. And when you were born again, you received from the Lord taste buds on your soul to taste the goodness of God. Isn't that cool? And in the discipline of the word, what we do is we use those taste buds and we grow more of them. And we learn to taste his goodness more and more. How about the discipline of prayer? In the Gospels, we see Jesus is constantly in prayer. He prays all night before he chooses the 12 apostles. He prays through the evening, the Garden of Gethsemane. He did it because he knew he needed it, which might surprise you. You're like, he's God. He is God. But he's living as a spirit-empowered man, and he needs prayer. He needs his Father's power. He needs the Spirit. I don't know if prayer comes easy to you guys. I won't ask you because you don't raise your hands anyway, but it's fine. We'll work on it, you know. They go up. They go down. But uh, prayer's been a struggle for me. But one thing I've learned in the last few years is that I can pray really well if I'm walking and if I'm talking out loud. So if I pray, walking and talking, for some reason I could just like pray forever, apparently. I've not reached the limit of it. So we need to just figure out what works for us. And, and I think for most people that try to pray silently, like that's varsity level prayer, and most of us are JV, so you probably want to pray out loud for most people, or write your prayers out, or something to stay tracking. But I would really recommend a prayer walk, you know? You could like get credit for it on your watch um, <laughs> as well. You know, not with the Lord, but with Apple. And not feel like a total slob at the end of the day, because you close your rings. But um, another thing I found with prayer is, prayer is great for when I can't sleep. I don't have a problem falling asleep. It's like seven seconds, right, Tosh? Something like that, seven seconds. It's like I'm talking, then, you know, you can hear it, you know, when it started. 
but uh, in the early morning hours, I'll wake up too early, and I won't really want to get out, I won't really do anything, but it's a great time to pray, because at least with me, like, the two stumbling blocks for prayer are drowsiness and distraction, and by definition, you have neither of those in those times. It's a great time to pray, and so really kind of think about how you pray, but in the discipline of prayer, we learn to seek God for what only He can do, right? And uh, JC and Don are actually starting, uh, they're right down here, they're starting a prayer group that starts on the 20th, so talk to them. It'd be great to kind of learn together. How about this? Discipline of simplicity. I wanted to grab one that maybe you aren't used to. Jesus didn't have a lot of stuff. He didn't need a lot of stuff. He did have one really nice tunic, okay, which they gambled for at the end of his life, but he didn't have a lot of stuff. And it's not a sin to have things, but we want to make sure our things don't have us. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So our possessions have like a magnetic effect on our hearts, that our hearts are drawn to our possessions. Years ago, I I was coming to realize how I medicate with purchases. I won't ask for a show of hands here. But I medicate with purchases, and I found even small things. So like if I'm bored, or if I was sad, or I felt empty, buy something, right? And have that little hit of dopamine or whatever. And if you do it, if you do it through Amazon, you get two hits of dopamine at least. You get one when you order it, one when it shows up. When it shows up, you're like, what is this? You know, I don't even know what it is. Every single time, I'm like, this is a great surprise, like Christmas for myself. But I realized that I, I would go to that, and it would just be little things even, not, not even like major purchases, but I just saw that, that there was a, like a sense of I need to like fill myself with this. And I ended up doing a couple months of fasting from purchases. And if you guys have ever fasted from anything that you medicate yourself with, Nothing brings you in confrontation with yourself like that, you know, when you realize I can't go to this thing because I'm fasting from it right now, whether that's food or purchases or, you know, media or just like mindless scrolling, and you've just decided, you know what, maybe one month without this, I would really recommend it. It's amazing how it brings awareness to what's going on, what you're truly going for. Um, you guys know that Jesus could fast for 40 days, which tells us he did it a lot and trained for it. Because if you start a 40-day fast today, you die, okay? So he had trained for this, and he had uh, trained to do this so that he could train himself to, to live on the filling of the Spirit. In Luke 4, it says that Jesus, after a 40-day fast, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So in simplicity and fasting, we learn to stop self-medicating and bring our souls to the one who can fill us. How about the discipline of Sabbath? Discipline of Sabbath. Jesus kept the Sabbath in the way it was intended, right? He was very controversial in how he kept the Sabbath because he kept it not as a burden, but as a delight. He famously said that the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, which was fighting words uh, back then. Guys, the Sabbath is a gift. You know, I don't know what kind of background you grew up in church-wise and stuff like that. There was some sort of burden. The Sabbath is a gift, guys. Don't forget that the Sabbath was first given as a command to slaves that were just freed. Okay, so they're freed out of Egypt, and he gives them this gift of the Sabbath. Imagine how big of a gift that is. He was like, don't work on this day, or I'll kill you, which was a gift, right? And I feel like I'm like really bad at Sabbath. My, my family knows that. I'm restless. I'm striving to be continually productive and twitchy and all that. And I, it would actually be a, a nice thing for God to say, don't work today, or I'll kill you. And that would actually be quite helpful. And these people were slaves, and they probably needed that, you know? I'm serious. You're going to die, so stop working. In the discipline of the Sabbath, what we do is we, we train our souls to rest in the Lord. 
We actually rest from establishing our own righteousness, and we rest from the illusion that we care for ourselves. We rest in Christ's righteousness and his care. Uh, Discipline is service. Jesus served others through his teaching, through his healing. He was was constantly about the work of of, uh, serving others. He focused on others' needs, not his own. Um, In the discipline of service, I think you guys have noticed this, discipline of service is great for realizing how weak you are. You know, coming to the end of yourself. As you, as you try to serve others, you find out how you really do need the Lord to come through, and you really do need him to fill you, and you find that he does. I, I love in Isaiah 58, it says this, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire and scorch places and make your bones strong. And you shall be, this is really cool, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a stream of water whose waters never uh, fail. We find that in serving others, we find that God continually pours into us as we pour out to others. Discipline of gathered worship. You guys are doing it right now, so you're starting off right. I love in Luke 4 how it says that Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. Isn't that weird? Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. That Jesus, God in the flesh, felt the need to weekly gather and be ministered to by flawed people. It's kind of staggering, right? And it should serve as a great rebuke to anyone who can't find a church good enough for them. Jesus did, right? He went to the synagogue and found it very edifying, (laughs) you know? Jesus did. Jesus was easily edified, guys. That's what maturity looks like. Sometimes we think like the more mature we get, the more difficult we should be to be pleased with teaching and and church and stuff like that because we're real mature and so we just, all these places are kind of lame. Maturity looks like being easily edified. Jesus was easily edified. Jesus would come here. Jesus would come here not because it was the best church in town, but Jesus would be like, yeah, this works for me. I'll come here. He would come. He would He'd receive your greeting. Dell and Scott, you know, as he went up to greet him, he would receive your greeting. He'd be happy you greeted him. He'd be encouraged by that. He would enjoy your fellowship the way he enjoyed the fellowship of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He would eat a donut, right? He would be led in worship by the worship team. Isn't that wild? He'd be like, oh, this is helpful. I needed to worship, right? He would attentively listen to preaching. No pressure. He still does. You know, I thought about that this week. He still does. No pressure. He would appreciate your hug and your care for him. You know what Jesus would say as he left? He'd say, I needed that. Like he was actually strengthened by the fellowship of believers and by worshiping with his people. Isn't that amazing? In the discipline of gathered worship, we allow the spirit to feed us through his flawed people. We're like, I want to be fed by the Lord, but not through you guys. No, it's like, I'm willing to be fed by the Spirit through flawed people to receive refreshment and keep running the race. So I'd ask you, what's your training plan? How do you plan to reorient your life to do through training what you could never do through trying alone? How do you want to reorient your life around these practices so that you will live more and more in the power of the Spirit in this, in this year? The same Spirit that empowered Jesus through his life lives in you. Like, How do we draw our strength more from him? But there's another motivation to training yourself for godliness. So the first motivation, remember, was the value of godliness. But there's a second motive, and it's really cool, and it's in verse 10. 
He says that we toil and strive and we train ourselves in godliness. Why? Look at verse 10. Because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people. Isn't that cool? Why do we do these things? We, we don't do these things because we're hoping to earn favor with God. Totally the opposite, right? Our training is fueled by the hope we already have in God because we've set our hope on the living God. Like, God has given us, some of you guys are very new believers, some of you guys have been believers for a while, maybe you can just remember this, but God has given us hope in our lives for the very first time, you know? Our hope is in God. God who became a man, that stayed God. A man who lived his whole life in the power of the Spirit. And what was Jesus training for? He's training all his life. What's he training for? He's training for his marathon, right? His marathon was the cross. He was training so that on that Friday, April 3rd, Jesus could walk up that hill to be nailed to a cross. And because he had trained there, he could offer his wrist to his executioner, right? His executioner finds a little divot right there in the carpal bones and drove that nail and drove his arm right into that splintery wooden beam. And then Jesus offered his other hand, which is the hardest part to do. He offered his other hand. They weren't wrestled from him. Don't get the sense that he's doing this. He put it out there, had it nailed, and he put the other one out, right? And then he, he offered his feet. And Jesus didn't fight it, and he didn't resist, and he didn't curse him, and he didn't threaten. But Jesus wasn't being passive either. He was actively offering himself on the cross for you. And there nailed on that cross, Jesus endured in his flesh the eternal consequences of all your ungodliness and all my ungodliness. But you guys got to realize, it wasn't the nails that held him there. He held himself there. He had trained to do it. It was an act of love. His love for you held him there. It was an exercise of love that he was able to endure because he had trained his whole life for it. Through the eternal spirit, Jesus offered himself without blemish to God, and he did it for you. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus now invites you to take credit for his perfect life. Not only does he take away your sin, but he'll go, you know that perfect life I lived? You want to take credit for it? And I know some of you guys are like, oh, you know, I... I I, I would never take credit for someone else's work, and, you know, I, I don't want to hand out. Like, you need to reconsider. Because <laughs> you have no way to make yourself right with a holy God. And he's saying, take credit for my work. Trust in him, you know? Just today, reach out to him and say, Lord, I want that. I want to take credit for Jesus' righteousness. I want my sin wiped away. Have your sin washed away and have his righteousness instead. And that's what our hope is set on. Our hope is not set on that we pray enough or meditate enough or serve enough or fast enough. We do all those things, verse 10, because we have set our hope on the living God. And I just ask you, do you feel loved by Jesus this morning? Maybe this is one where you, like, you've been working that arm and you're ready. Do you guys feel loved by Jesus this morning? Do you feel that? Do you feel the love of Jesus when you think about the cross? The psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I love that. It's in Psalm 119. I'll run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. That feeling you had when you thought of the gospel, that was your heart being enlarged. Did you like that feeling? That's a good feeling, right? You feel free. You feel like, okay, I can do this. I can follow the Lord, you know? You feel secure in him. And I just say, that's the spirit enlarging your heart. Let's seek that more and more this year. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that that your son Jesus is for us 
and for our sin a double cure that you save from wrath and make us pure. And we know, Lord, for all of us who have come to trust in your son Jesus, that we've already been saved from wrath. We're already righteous in your sight. Not because of what we've done, but because of his blood and his righteous life. And we know too, Lord, that being united to Christ means that we have his life through the Spirit in us. And we just pray, Lord, as we fumble around and try to figure out how to live this Christian life, we pray, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom and grace in it. We pray that you'd strengthen us in it. Lord, help us to not fall for the same traps that we fell in last year, but help us with wisdom to pursue you. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to do this on our own. In fact, we can't that we get to learn to draw our strength from your spirit. And I pray for all of us as we leave here that we would just have this deep, profound sense that we have met with you, the living God, and that you came with us to dwell in us, to transform us. And when we fall, we pray we'd quickly run back to you, quickly repent of sin, and then just move forward. Pressing on. We thank you for your love for us and your power in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.